Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, traditional interest-based loans are not an option for some Muslim Coloradans. The relation between the borrower and lender is totally different. It's more into a partnership. We'll look at an alternative financing system that a team of recent MBA graduates developed. And we explore a map showing how pollution disproportionately affects low-income communities. All that and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Wednesday, President Joe Biden signed several executive orders aimed at tackling the issue of climate change. One order that could have a lasting impact on Colorado is one that targets new oil and gas leasing on federal lands. The order calls for a review of the government's public lands leasing process and bars the Interior Department from selling any new leases to oil companies for at least a year. KUNC's Matt Bloom is with us now to talk about what that means for our energy industry here in Colorado. Colorado. Hey, Matt. Hey, Aaron. Now, many environmental groups are cheering this decision, saying that we shouldn't have fossil fuel development on public lands. Can you give us a sense of how much drilling actually takes place on federal land here in Colorado? I've heard estimates that uh, about 10 percent to a quarter of our drilling is on leased federal land. And that's not a lot. Most of our activity is on state and private land, but it's still a pretty big, it it still generates a lot of revenue for local governments. I spoke with Bernadette Johnson, an economist with the energy analytics company in Veris in Denver about this. Here's what she had to say. A lot of the federal land in Colorado tends to be kind of more mountainy. So there needs to be some more drilling there, but it's expensive. It's hard to drill. In today's commodity price environment, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So we're not seeing it. As we've reported, we're on the tail end of a year-long oil bust. Prices have been really low for a number of reasons over the past year. There's a pandemic. (laughs) Obviously, people aren't flying or driving as much. There's also a, a huge oversupply of oil on the global market. And that's really been the main driver behind uh, a slowing down in drilling all over the state. And I want to come back to prices in just a moment, but it sounds like this executive order, at least in the immediate future, won't stop all oil drilling in Colorado, right? You're right. There were a couple uh, big federal lease sales that the Interior Department had scheduled for Colorado this year. Um, The soonest was set for June. Those are now off the table. But this order, again, only pauses new leasing for now. It'll be interesting to see what sort of permanent changes come out of the year-long pause. Those may have a more lasting economic impact to the state, whatever those may be. What is important, I think, to remember is that for years into the future, companies could keep drilling on federal lands in Colorado um, because they all bought leases under the Trump administration, which was much, much more friendly to oil and gas companies. In a statement, Governor Jared Polis said Biden's decision to pause leasing was a, quote, good move for America and for Colorado. But As you'd expect, the reaction in Weld County, where most of the state's oil gets produced, has been a little different. The local economy has already been suffering the past year due to low oil prices. 
now the new administration is coming out with this renewed focus on climate change and clean energy. So what does all of this mean for the future of oil and gas in northern Colorado? I've been talking to a lot of people who who work in the oil field, like on the front lines. And and to them, this this moment feels existential, like an existential crisis for many of them. On one hand, you have Biden's pivot toward cleaner energy, very clear how he stands on that. Uh, and on the other, you have the state of Colorado, which which we know for years has been tightening the regulatory environment around drilling, which makes it harder to do and much more expensive. Colby Edgington, uh, I, who I spoke with, used to work as a driver for a rig moving company in Greeley. Right after Biden got elected, he he quit his job and started driving for a construction company. One reason was there just weren't many rigs to move. His hours got cut. But he also just doesn't feel like oil and gas will ever get back to the level it was in northern Colorado, say, say four or five years ago. When you look at planning a life, you know, with your family and everything else, and you're trying to stabilize your income and your livelihood, it makes it extremely difficult when there's nothing stable about that industry. We've also seen local governments start to feel the pinch. Um, For example, Weld County says that its budget took at least a 30% hit in oil and gas tax revenues um, due to the energy bust. And and so that kind of gives a glimpse of, of what the future may hold. Looking ahead to the rest of 2021, what else could we expect to see change across northern Colorado due to the very unpredictable economics and policies controlling the energy industry. Similar to last year, one obvious thing we can all expect to see is just fewer of those tall uh, drill rigs that have been a staple of the northern Colorado skyline for years. Um, Even though oil prices are increasing, a lot of companies here are, are being very conservative about their plans to start drilling again because there's still a lot of uncertainty about when travel will pick back up and demand for oil will go back to the level it was before the pandemic. Um, that obviously has implications for, for job growth in the region this year. It's not going to be as strong as it has been in the past. I also think it's important to to note that we're going to see huge investments in, in more renewable projects, wind and solar from our utility companies here in northern Colorado, as well as some local governments who are looking at greener infrastructure projects like more charging for electric vehicles. So all in all, it'll be interesting to watch if if Biden's actions um, help speed along any of those projects. And we know you'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, Thank you so much, Matt. You're welcome. To get a picture of what pollution looks like in our state, there are plenty of maps available. But one of them, released last year, shows how pollution in our state disproportionately affects low-income communities and communities of color. It was put together by Mapping for Environmental Justice, a project with the Earth Island Institute. The team of policy and data experts is led by Adam Buchholz, who joins us now to tell us more about how the map was put together and what it really shows. Adam, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. There are maps out there showing pollution levels in our state, but your team's map specifically identifies pollution disparities, and it does that through something called the cumulative EJ impact. Can you explain what that is? Basically, our maps are trying to tell you, if you're interested in fighting environmental injustice or disparities, where you might want to start doing it. So to get there, you need to look for two things across the state. You need to look for exposure to pollution, And then you also need to look at vulnerability to pollution. 
communities with high levels of vulnerability and lots of pollution are a good place to aim policies that are meant to address those disparities. So a great example of this combination of vulnerability and exposure is the fact that asthma makes you much more vulnerable to air pollution. So if you have an air pollution policy that's meant to improve air quality, you might want to target it to those communities with really high asthma rates. Asthma isn't the only thing that makes you vulnerable to air pollution. There's actually a lot of different factors. Once you have all this information of where all the pollution is and where those vulnerable communities are, you can have a really complex picture. And what our maps do is simplify all of that data into a tool that anyone can understand and use. So on our map, red areas are the hardest hit, where the impact of pollution are the highest, and green areas are less of a concern. Well, now on to what the map actually looks like. So for the listeners at home, there are hotspots mostly centered around the northern front range, kind of between Denver and Greeley. Can you break down for us why there are hotspots there? So as I said, those are areas where there's this really high combination of vulnerability and exposure. So if you want to talk about Greeley, for example, is a place where there is a really high rate of poverty, much higher than the rest of the state. There's lower educational attainment. There's a higher rate of non-English speaking households, each of which combine to make folks there more vulnerable because they may not be able to access high quality medical care, for example. And that's all combined with really high levels of pollution. It has some of the worst air quality in the state. There are many more facilities that store toxic chemicals than almost anywhere else in the state. And there's a really high rate of lead paint in old homes. Environmental injustice is not a new concept. And so I'm wondering what you think a map like your team's map can achieve that previous efforts haven't. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. We are not telling a new story. Advocates have been talking about the disparity in exposure to pollution for low-income communities and communities of color for decades. But part of the issue is that it seems like at the state level, people haven't really done much about it. Otherwise, our map wouldn't show the patterns that it does. Basically, the poorer your community and the more people of color it has, the less the state seems to care about the pollution in your community. Sometimes those factors historically have actually driven the state to target those communities for toxic land uses. You can see this in the construction of the national highway system or in historical redlining practices, the legacy of which you can you can still see on our map. And what our map does is it basically provides a way to retell those stories in a language that policymakers might be more willing or able to hear and understand. I think sometimes stories aren't enough for some reason for policymakers to act. And so you can turn these consistent and well-documented anecdotes into a quantitative picture that really substantiates those stories in a way that's much harder to deny. Speaking of stories... I know you have a connection to Colorado. You used to work as a teacher in the Denver public school system as a middle school science teacher. And I understand that you sort of started um, mapping for environmental justice after seeing how living in an area of high pollution was affecting your students. Can you tell us more about what you saw with your students and how you made the connection to pollution? A lot of this came from... I was working in Title I schools in Denver where there were really high rates of poverty 
And a lot of my students were facing a variety of different challenges that made it harder for them to succeed in school. You know, there were really high rates of homelessness, a lot of instability in their home lives, and even lots of students who had everything going for them and were really determined and smart and driven kids who would miss days or, or sometimes up to a week of school because of asthma attacks. And their asthma was out of control because their families couldn't afford or couldn't access high-quality enough medical care to actually get their asthma into a place where they could consistently come to school. So this was a pattern that I, I sort of knew existed, and by creating a map, it was sort of a it was a moment when I when I first saw one of these maps, which was California's Calvin virus screen. It was this light bulb moment that let me say, "Oh, this this is the pattern that I was seeing. This is the thing that was just a story in my mind, and somehow it being translated onto a map made it more real or substantiated it in a in a way that you know before I wasn't I wasn't really sure if I was seeing a real pattern, and and these maps can sort of make it more real in a way that it wasn't for me before. What would it take for meaningful action to be taken on this in Colorado? To, to turn these maps from just an interesting image into action, state agencies need to start using it to make decisions. And a variety of states have done this with different degrees of success. But you can do things like make it harder to get a permit for a new polluting industry in one of these communities. You can start investing directly in these communities to clean up the air or the water. Or you can just start enforcing the environmental regulations that already exist, because a lot of times they just don't get enforced in these communities. And so just following the rules we already have is a great step forward. Adam Buchholz is the director and founder of Mapping for Environmental Justice. Adam, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Just over 3% of Colorado households did not have a checking or savings account or use other financial services in 2019. The reasons vary from not having enough money to distrust of financial institutions and inconvenient locations. But what about religious beliefs? As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, a team of MBA graduates is trying to change attitudes around banking. Manesha Sahanyar recently graduated from Colorado State University's College of Business Impact MBA program. While in school, she partnered with two other female students to create a financial consulting company called Empower. But before their degrees were conferred in December... Good morning, everyone. I am Manisha. Empower had to complete their final assignment, pitching their business venture to possible investors. Sahanyar started the Zoom presentation with Tariq's story. His dream is to open a restaurant. He needs financing, but he can't find any product that aligns with its Muslim faith. What he's looking for, he's looking for interest-free financing. Or what is called Islamic finance. It's an alternative financial system based on Sharia law that prohibits interest-based loans. Under this system, a bank customer can still get a loan to start a business or buy a car, just like conventional financing. But there is one key difference. The relation between the borrower and lender is totally different. It's more into a partnership, like a buyer and seller. Sahanyar is from Afghanistan and has been working in this field for over a decade. 
As she goes on to explain, this partnership is built on trust. The lender and borrower share the profits and the risks until the loan is repaid. The basis of Islamic finance started in Islam back in Mecca, back in uh, 7th century. Giyath Naqspindi is a professor at Kogod School of Business at American University. Even though Islamic finance has existed for centuries, he says the first bank opened in Egypt in the 1960s, and the lending system grew from there. The expansion started in certain countries in the Gulf, then it went to Muslim countries, and then it went to European countries. Today, there are more than 300 banks and 250 mutual funds worldwide that offer Islamic-compliant products, which experts say account for roughly 5% of the global financial system. There are about 25 Islamic financial institutions in the U.S., and demand is expected to grow as the Muslim population increases. But Naqshbendi prefers to call Islamic finance alternative finance. People hear the so-called Islamic finance, they say, oh, So we have to have it in countries where there are Muslims. And my answer is you are wrong. Why? Because alternative finance is for humanity. He started teaching the system at Kogod in 2014, and three years later created what he believes to be the first graduate certificate in Islamic finance. One reason students enroll in the courses, he says, is because it doesn't fund businesses with products like pork, alcohol, or gambling. So the attraction of Islamic finance or alternative finance focuses on creating business activities that will benefit the community. That's why Manisha Sahanyar and her classmates pursued it as a business venture while at CSU. The Impact MBA program focuses on creating socially responsible and sustainable businesses. Empower is a B2B, and we do three things. Back at the Zoom presentation, Empower's Maria Scotti continues the pitch. She says the company helps mission-driven lenders create and offer Islamic finance products, trains their staff, and provides easy-to-use contract templates. We are offering a new business model. Empower will be the first and only Islamic finance system development firm in the U.S. who is working with CDFIs and mission-driven lenders. CDFI stands for Community Development Financial Institution. They provide services to low-income and underserved communities. According to the federal government, there are about 1,000 certified CDFIs across the country. We basically do microloans. That means up to $50,000 and up to five years of term. Agraj Dungal is an operations officer at Aurora-based Community Enterprise Development Services, or SEDS Finance, which provides business loans. The nonprofit was started in 2009 to serve refugees and immigrant communities. A lot of our clients don't meet the requirement for the traditional banks and financial institution. SEDS Finance is the only Colorado lender to offer an Islamic-compliant loan called Marabaha. While Marabaha doesn't charge interest, there is an administrative fee that's calculated based upon the risk associated with the loan. Our objective is to help entrepreneurs fulfill their dream. More than a third of their loans are Islamic compliant. So over the summer, SEDS Finance worked with Empower to figure out how to better serve these clients. This included creating a theoretical Sharia-compliant line of credit. You can help us disrupt the current financial system that is failing too many. As she wraps up Empower's presentation, Scotty makes one last call to action. What we are doing is all about providing equity, access, and transforming systems for a better world for us all. 
This is just the first of many pitch meetings Empower hopes to have in the future. They want to work with other financial institutions to help provide more lending options to Muslims and other immigrant and underserved groups in Colorado. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. The Northern Colorado economy should fare better this year than in 2020, but economic development directors are still feeling cautious. They note that recovery and job growth will depend in part on continued stimulus from the federal government. Ken Amundsen is managing editor for BizWest, and he joins us now with more on how business leaders are viewing the coming year. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Not bad. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. So earlier this week, you heard from economic developers from Weld, Larimer, Broomfield, and Boulder counties. They shared their views in a panel at the virtual economic forecast event that BizWest hosted. Give us kind of a broad takeaway to start. 2020 was a tough year for a number of reasons. What are they expecting? in 2021? Well, um, economic developers tend to be a very positive lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they're quite, quite positive about 2021. And I think uh, rightly so. Northern Colorado was not hit as bad as many parts of the country due to the pandemic and the resulting recession. And they're expecting uh, some recovery. In fact, in many communities, they were already seeing industries inquiring about relocating uh, to northern Colorado, uh, even in the restaurant industry, which was severely impacted. There's new restaurants popping up already. The hospitality sector as a whole was hit especially hard by the pandemic. Um, Tourism kind of gently discouraged. Dining at restaurants was either limited or not allowed at all. Is the trend still downward here or is there some light at the end of the tunnel? What will it take to to bring back these jobs? You mentioned the tunnel and uh, Jacob Castilla from Fort Collins uh, mentioned that uh, his quote was, um, I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still in the tunnel. His assessment is that, as well as some of the others, is that we had some weaknesses in our economy prior to the pandemic, and those are still there. So, you know, those are going to have to be dealt with in one fashion or another. But in terms of the restaurant industry, uh, uh, there's a lot of optimism there. Many of them that are still, that have survived, have found ways to generate some revenue that enables them to keep their doors at least partially open. I have noticed just in the last day or so a couple of stories. These are, these are not our stories, but uh, about uh, ghost kitchens. And I was really struck by that. What is a ghost kitchen? Well, it's a uh, kitchen many times uh, operating out of a hotel that's not open. And they're producing food just for takeout. Maybe producing food for another restaurant just for takeout. Well, it sounds like during this panel, uh, the term disruption came up a few times, at least. Disruption can be a good thing in the business world, but not so much here uh, with the pandemic. I'm wondering how these regions find their stability again. Uh, Ben Snow from Greeley uh, has mentioned this a number of times, I've heard him say, and uh, he said, with disruption comes opportunity. Anytime there's disruption, that creates a market opportunity for an entrepreneur to do something else. And so there's a loss of business and there's a birth of business, you know, all at the same time happening. The disruption, I think, is going to be really interesting this coming year to see what things will stick. A couple new things came up uh, during the economic forecast this week. But obviously e-commerce, 
you know, people of all ages, uh, young to old, have embraced e-commerce as a way to get their goods and services. And so they've, uh, that'll probably continue to a large degree. Offices, you know, the speculation has been that offices will never be the same, and I think that's probably right. There'll be more people working from home permanently, or at least part of their time. But uh, the home office doesn't have to be even near where where the real office is, <laughs> as we know. It right. could be anywhere in the country. People can work wherever they want. And one thing that I thought was very interesting that I hadn't thought about, online learning is probably going to disrupt universities. And, you know, students may not return to the classroom like everybody thought they would. That sounds like it could present an interesting new wrinkle for university towns like, you know, Boulder and Fort Collins and Greeley. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the thought was that the uh, digital adoption rate has maybe progressed uh, five or ten years faster than it normally would have. So universities are going to have to consider that as they try to reopen doors um, uh, this spring and this fall. Last year was expected to be a time of sustained economic growth across much of Colorado and the Front Range. Are these economic developers that you spoke with confident we'll see that again? Very confident. Uh, the, uh, the underpinnings of our economy here in northern Colorado are very, very strong and uh, are likely to you know, accelerate once we get the, the vaccine into the uh, into the population. Ken Amundsen is managing editor for Biz West. You'll find a link to this and other stories on the 2021 economic forecast at our website, KUNC.org. Ken, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me again. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll learn more about the mental health challenges facing first responders, including wildland firefighters and emergency medical technicians. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.